Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I want a, a show of hands here, a little survey. How many of you have a tattoo? How many people have a tattoo? Okay. Now, some of you are looking down the row, you're like, really? I did not know you had a tattoo. And now you're imagining, you're like, I wonder where it is. Stop doing that. That makes the room very awkward, okay? A lot of people have a tattoo. I don't personally have a tattoo, although the stats are pretty high. So on the older end of the age spectrum, about one in five people have tattoos. On the younger end of the age spectrum, one in three people have tattoos. And I'm not opposed to the idea on principle, but it does seem kind of like a big commitment. Like, how can you pick something that you, you know you're going to like in 10, 20, 50 years from now, like that's kind of a big deal. You, you might regret it. Well, the good news for those of you with tattoos is that they've done surveys and the vast majority of people don't actually end up regretting their tattoo, although some people do, okay? For instance, this guy probably has some regrets. God is an awesome God. He is, buddy, but you are not an awesome speller, okay? Or perhaps uh, this guy right here, he needed a proofreader. It's get better. Does it, though? does it? <laughs> uh, as an aside, if you're going to get a tattoo that is in a language you do not know, um, please have someone who knows that language actually read it before you get it on your body. So for example, if you are going to use Greek or Hebrew, which are the languages the Bible was written in, I'm just going to offer my services here. Shoot me an email with the design before you put it on so that you don't end up like some of my friends that have nonsense words tattooed on their body, okay? So I will happily sort of make sure it actually says something. Uh, here's another guy who might have some regrets. Now, in case you don't catch this the way I, I did not catch this, in 2015, the Mets lost 4-1 uh, to one to Kansas City. So before you get too excited about your team, make sure they actually sort of finish out the series. Uh, and then, of course, there's this guy. None. Not, not even one. <laughs> Those of you who are regulars here at Christ Community, you know that our senior pastor actually has a tattoo. Uh, he's got a couple. He's got uh, one on this arm. That's a quote from the Bible. Another on this arm. That's uh, a cross and the reference John 3.16. But what you might not know is he actually has another tattoo. One that he doesn't show a lot of people because he's a little embarrassed about it. But I'm going to out him and show you a picture of it right here. Don't worry, Jim. No regrets. No regrets. He's, he's actually that jacked. Like, he talks about working out. It's true. <laughs> well, we're in a series right now that we're calling The Lies We Tell Ourselves. And what we're doing is we're looking at things that many of us believe that aren't actually true. Things that shape the way we live and in some ways keep us chained up. That, that we're not actually free because we believe these things. And our hope is that over the course of this series, God's word speaks to those places in our lives and actually frees us with his truth. And so the lie we're talking about today is this. I have no regrets. I have no regrets. Regret, it's that feeling of loss or disappointment, maybe shame, that comes from looking back at your decisions and saying, I, I, I chose the wrong thing. A lot of times you see that fork in the road and you think, man, I, I went down this path, but I really, if I could go back, I would go down the other path. Our regrets really come from two big sources. They come from our should have dones, which are the things where we look at them and we say, I know what was right. I knew what the right thing to do in that situation was, but I did the wrong thing. 
And there's this sense of, you know, I, I, I should have done good, but I did wrong in that place. I, I should have kept that promise. I should have been there for that person. I, I should have stuck up for that friend of mine who was uh, being attacked in some way. I, I should have been less harsh with my kids. I should have been more available for them. I, I should have said, I'm sorry, or I forgive you when I still had the chance. The should have done's. The other source of regret are the might have been's. The might have been's. These are less moral. They're less uh, sort of decisions where I knew the right thing. They're more things where you say, you know what? If I, if I went back, I wonder how my life would have turned out differently. If I actually got the courage to ask her out. Or if I'd taken that job in Seattle or London or wherever it was. Or if we had bought this house rather than that house. Or, you know, if, if I had gone back and gotten my education, finished college like I wanted to. What, what might have been? What, what am I missing out on that I didn't have because of that? But whatever the source of regret it's a miserable feeling. It's a miserable feeling. We want to be able to say to ourselves, I don't have any regrets. We wish that were true. But is it? Is it actually possible to live without regret? If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the New Testament letter of Philippians. It's towards the back of the Bible. It's a little letter, maybe four pages long. So if you've got to use a table of contents to find it, no big deal. We're going to be in the third chapter. And this is a letter that was written by Paul. Paul was an early leader in the Christian movement, and he was writing to a little church in the town of Philippi, which is now in Greece. And in this part of the letter, he starts to get a little bit autobiographical. He's talking about his own life here. So we're going to be in chapter 3, starting in the second half of verse 4. Let me read this to you. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I, may be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this but, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we unpack this passage, we're going to look at three ways, three ways to deal with regret. Here's the first one. First thing you need to do is acknowledge your regret. You've got to acknowledge your regret. When people use that phrase, I have no regrets, they, they mean a number of different things sometimes. For a lot of people, when they say that, what they mean is, I did my best. I did my best. They look back on their past and they say, you know, given the information I had at the time, the resources I had at the time, I made the decision that I made and it turned out to be the wrong one, but I probably, if I was in that same situation, knowing what I knew then, I'd probably make the same one. So I did my best. Uh, sometimes they're talking about a risk that they took. You know, I started that business. I asked that person out. I, you know, I stood up for something I, I believed in. I said something I thought needed to be said and it didn't go the way I wanted, but I'm glad I took the risk. I'm glad I did it. I have no regrets. 
Other times when people say the phrase, what they mean is, I, I can't change the past. You know, I, I look back on the past, it hasn't gone the way I wanted. I've, I've done some things that are wrong, I've had some failures, but I can't go back and undo it, so um, why, why dwell on that? You know, I learned some lessons, it made me who I am, so no regrets in that respect. And in some ways, both of those meanings of that phrase are just ways to have kind of a healthy perspective, kind of a realistic perspective on the past. And it, it, they're not too bad when someone says that, but sometimes the phrase takes on a more unhealthy turn. Sometimes when someone says, I have no regrets, what they mean is this, I don't want to take responsibility. I don't want to take responsibility. Maybe you've seen this with a public figure who's been called out for something that they've done wrong. They've been caught doing something that was illegal or immoral. And they stand in front of people and they say, I did what I did. I have no regrets. It's a way of, it's kind of a defensive move to say, you know what, you can't blame me. You can't put shame on me. I have no regrets about this. I'm fine. Don't, don't talk to me about that. Maybe you've actually heard that in your own personal life. Maybe you've said that to someone in your personal life. I don't want to take responsibility for this, so I, I have no regrets. Uh, other times people will say it, and what they mean is, it's not so much talking to people on the outside, it's talking to themselves saying, I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to feel shame about what I've done. Like when I look back and I think about my behavior and my actions, my decisions, I actually feel really bad about myself. And so I'm just going to partition that part of my life off. I'm not going to revisit it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to talk about it. And I'm going to say to myself, almost to convince myself, I have no regrets about that. I'm not, it's no big deal. But that's sort of like someone who like trips over something and they're like, oh yeah, I meant to do that. Like they sort of turn it into something. It's like, no, no, you didn't mean to do that. And this can be a helpful thing just to help you live your life. But what it ends up being is, is like shoving all the mess into your closet Like it makes your room livable. You can function day to day in that room. But if you ever need something from the closet, it gets really messy then. That's what people mean by this. I have no regrets. There's another thing that people could mean when they say I have no regrets. And it's this. I am a sociopath. Now, I I say that in, in kind of a serious way because one of the symptoms of being a sociopath or a psychopath is that you do things that hurt other people and you don't feel bad about it. And that's actually one of the symptoms, one of the signs that something is wrong with you. And the reason I include this in here is because it actually exposes the reason why I have no regrets is a lie. Because if you are a healthy human being, you will have regrets. It's part of being a human being in a broken world. And if you don't have regrets about your actions, something, it's a sign that something is actually wrong. The, the regrets come from this. It's, it's the fact that we can look at our ideals and say, I want to live a certain way. I want a life that I can feel proud of. And then we look at our lives and we realize there's a gap between those things. And in that gap is where the regrets come from. And so this is actually the lie that we know is a lie. But it's the lie we're trying to convince ourselves is true. I have no regrets. So what do we actually do? How do we actually cope with our regrets? Well, for a lot of us, what we try to do is we try to minimize our regrets. We look at the aspects of our lives that we do actually feel good about, the things that feel okay, and we think, you know what, I, I wonder if there's enough there to kind of balance out the scale. Like maybe, maybe things will tip in the right direction. I got more good than bad in my life. What we're looking for is what Paul describes in this passage as confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh. We don't use that phrase, but in Scripture, when the, the Bible talks about flesh, what it's often talking about is not your physical body. It's kind of a metaphor for all the things that come naturally to a person. So the things that sort of come out of you, the actions, the attitudes, the behaviors that sort of happen when you're not even trying. They, when, when no one else is looking, when you're just, uh, no one's imposing something on you, this is sort of just what you naturally do. That's your flesh. 
And so Paul looks at this and he's saying, you know, if anybody has a reason to feel good about themselves, about what comes bubbling up out of them, I do. I got a long list of accomplishments. He actually goes through a whole bunch of them in verse eight. Let me read those to you, or verse five. Let me read those to you. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Benjamin, of the uh, people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now we read this list of accomplishments and we're like, I don't even know what half of those mean. What was going on? Why are you bragging about these things in particular? But for Paul, this was basically the ideal resume for a first century devout Jew. He, he can go through from the beginning to the end of his life and say, check, check, check. I did all the things. This is, this is the kind of life you want to live if you're in my community and my culture. And so he's saying, look, if anybody can look at their life and what's come out of it and be proud of that and feel like I, I, I was successful, it's me. Like he was so passionate, he went above and beyond. He didn't just uh, practice his own faith. He actually actively suppressed people who tried to undermine that faith. And so he's feeling pretty good about himself. It's so much so that he'd say, you know, based on our standards, I'm faultless. Now that feels like an overstatement, but in Paul's pre-Jesus eyes, he's saying, I have no regrets. Now we don't use these same standards to measure ourselves, but we do our version of that within our culture. We look at our lives and we've got this list of things. We say, you know, if I can say yes to these things, I can actually feel pretty good about how I've done. Did, did I do well in school? Was I successful in sports or music? You have a good career. Am I making enough money? Can I afford the luxuries, the comforts that I want in my life? Am I dating someone who's attractive? Did I marry someone who's a good spouse? Did, did I raise successful kids? Do they, they make me look good? Can I be proud of their lives? Am I physically fit? Am I attractive? Did, it, did I accomplish my goals? Did I follow those dreams that I had when I was young? And we look at that list, we answer those questions. If we can say yes to enough of them, we say, you know what? I think I can probably feel good in spite of the, the regrets that I have. But does that work? Not for long, actually. Because I'm a, a pastor, a lot of people do kind of two different things with me. I kind of get both ends of the spectrum. Either people are just lying through their teeth about their life with me, like, oh, yeah, I got to impress the pastor, make sure I look really, really good to him. Or they're desperate and they're like, I'm raw, honest, this is things I've never told anybody. And because of that, sometimes I get a window into what people actually think about their lives. And I'll tell you this, most people, when they get real honest, they say, it doesn't matter what the list of accomplishments looks like. I don't actually feel satisfied. I don't feel like my life amounted to what I wanted it to. And in fact, most people go beyond that. They look at themselves and they say, I'm not really content with who I am. There are a lot of things about me that I, I really don't like and I feel really ashamed of. That, that it doesn't matter if I can, you know, look out to the world and say, look at what I've done. I know how thin that is. When I look in the mirror, I know what's really there. I know what the failures other people see are in my life. And it's not just, uh, and the thing is that these are just our cultural values, right? Like these are all the things that our society says, this is really important. We don't even live up to those standards, let alone God's standards. You know how he measures our lives? I don't look at all of those things. His measurement for our lives is himself. Think about how heavy that is. All throughout the Bible, he says things like, be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. As I have loved you, you ought to love others. He's the standard for who we ought to be. If we measure ourselves by that, it gets really, really scary, doesn't it? God made us in his image. That's who we are. It's an incredible, incredible gift. He says, I made you to reflect who I am. And what that does is it gives every single person an inherent dignity, value, and worth. But it's also this incredibly high calling, isn't it? To represent God in the world. 
God made us and he sent us out in the world. He said, I want you to take care of this place. I want you to go out in this place and I want you to act like me. I want you to fill this world with my love and my goodness and my justice and my beauty. What have we done instead? We've built lives around our own petty desires. We've filled the world with selfishness and greed and evil. And I'm not just talking about the big scale things, you know, the things you can point to like, that's unjust, that's evil. I'm talking about the small scale things, the the little ordinary nastiness that all of us participate in day after day. The the selfish lie to look better in front of someone, uh, gossiping behind someone's back, losing your temper over something that didn't require anger, objectifying a person with your lust. These are all the kind of slow drips of poison that are steadily killing our world. And one day when we stand before God, he's going to expose all of that for what it is. He's going to say, how did that measure up? And whether you feel regret today about your life or not, on that day, you will have reason to feel regret. So what do you do about that? It starts by acknowledging that those things are there. Acknowledging your regret, saying, God, I have failed. I have done this wrong. I can't do anything about it. That's where it begins. But once you do that, once you acknowledge your regret, the next step is this, to surrender your regret, to surrender your regret. Now, I personally love a good time travel story. I love a movie or a book that involves time travel. It's always fascinating. It can be anything from Back to the Future to Endgame to Interstellar to Primer, even Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I am not picky, okay? (laughs) Part of the fun of a time travel story is at the end, trying to untangle all the twists and turns. They're always a little bit of a mind bender, like, how did that work? Was that a paradox? And you, you talk for an hour afterwards, like, yeah, no, it made sense. No, it didn't. No, yeah, it did. And that's why we watch those movies. They're intriguing in that way. Usually they're fun adventures too. But I actually think the real appeal of a time travel story, the deeper appeal, is that it's the story that says, what if you could have a do-over? You ever wanted a do-over in your life? Go back and undo something, have the big control Z button on life, be like, oh, good, okay. It's like uh, Gmail introduced that thing where it's like after you hit send, it's like for 15 seconds, you can undo it. It's like, oh man, I need that on so many things in my life. I wish I could have that on my mouth, all right? even in a sermon sometimes. Um, (laughs) A whole lot of us, when we experience regret, that's what we're hoping for. We wish that we could go back and say, can I have a do-over on that? And even though we don't have a time machine, we actually attempt to do this sometimes. We look back on a past regret and we say, okay, I'm gonna compensate for it now. You know, I wasn't available for my kids when they were younger, but you know what I'm gonna do? What if if I pay for their education or I spoil my grandkids? Maybe, maybe that will make up for my mistakes in the past. Or maybe you say, you know, I know what screwed up my first marriage. It was me. It was my behavior. So in, in my, my new marriage now, I'm going to be the perfect husband, the perfect wife. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to undo all those things I did before. And we know that doing those things doesn't actually kind of undo those mistakes. But that's not the point. The point is we're trying to address the feelings that we have, trying to fix those things. But getting a do-over doesn't actually solve those problems. The only thing that actually solves it is surrendering that regret to Jesus. When Paul reviews his accomplishments in this passage, uh, he goes through his credentials, and then the very next thing he does is completely rejects them. Look back at verse 7. He says, Whatever were gains to me, all that stuff I talked about, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He's saying these things aren't just unimportant. They're actually digging me further into the hole. These are negatives. And he goes so far as to say this, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Garbage. Okay, I want to teach you a Greek word here. This is one of my favorites. Repeat after me. Skubalon. 
Skubalon. That word garbage is the Greek word skubalon, and garbage is a decent translation for that word. But there's actually a better translation, and I'll give you a clue of what that might be. <laughs> skubalon can be translated garbage or waste, but it's not the waste you find in a dumpster. It's the waste you find in a septic tank. In fact, if you look this Greek word up in a, a lexicon, a Greek-English lexicon, most people say that if you really want to translate it well, you have to use a word I'm not allowed to use on stage. <laughs> so Paul's using very, very strong language. Why would he do that? Why would he say, all of those things I accomplished, all those things that look so good, they're, they're not just losses, they're, they're about as desirable as diarrhea. Why would he say that? Because focusing on those things, trying to say, I'm going to have a redo, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to compensate for my regret, actually gets you further away from the solution rather than closer. It actually makes you say, I'm going to put even more stock in myself. If I got myself into this hole, I'm going to get myself out of this hole. And if you were the, the cause of the problem, you are probably not going to be the solution. Well, Paul says the real solution is to look somewhere beyond yourself. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, that I may gain Christ. What is it that Christ offers that is a solution to our regret? What, what is it that he gives that undoes our should have done's and our might have been's? I want you to look at verse 9. Here's the first thing that he offers. It says, I consider them garbage that I may, may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, let me untangle this. Righteousness, righteousness. What are we talking about here? It's not a word that we use in most everyday language. The easiest way to remember what it means, though, is to look at the beginning of the word, right, right. If someone is righteous, they are in the right in that situation. So a judge who declares someone innocent says, you are in the right according to the law. Or if a mentor is trying to encourage their uncertain apprentice, they might say, you know, you did the right thing. You did the right thing. This is the thing that all of us want to hear about our lives, right? Like you, you did the right thing. You were in the right in that situation. You've done well. But what, like we just talked about, God can't look at our lives and say, yeah, yeah, you did the right thing across the board. So what do we do about that? Where do we find righteousness? The passage says, Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I need a righteousness that comes from God. And so this is what happens. Jesus offers us his righteousness. This is a very strange concept, but the Bible uses some metaphors that help make sense out of it. It's sort of like this. Jesus is the one person who did the right thing all throughout his life. You're unrighteous, he is righteous. He says, I'll give you that. So sometimes it talks about it as if it was clothing. You know, we're dressed in filthy rags and Jesus has this rich, beautiful robe on. And he says, let's trade clothes. You wear my rich robe and I will wear your filthy rags. Sometimes it talks about it in terms of a family. It's sort of like we are orphans and we are, we are out on our own having a, a, a rough time. And God says, I'm going to bring you in, welcome you in, adopt you as my children. And Jesus says, I will share my rightful inheritance with you. It was mine, but it's going to be yours. I actually find the most helpful analogy that the Bible uses on this is the analogy of marriage. So think of it this way. Let's say there is a woman who for the course of her life has accrued an, a massive debt bad decision after bad decision, and now she owes just a mountain of money. And it wasn't unjust, it wasn't unfair, it was her fault, she owes it, and she's never gonna be able to repay it. But then she meets a man, and he falls in love with her. And he says, in spite of your debt, in spite of your past, I love you so much, I wanna marry you. And it turns out that this man owns some really successful businesses, and he is incredibly, incredibly wealthy. What happens the moment the two of them say, I do? In that moment, her debt becomes his debt, and his riches become her riches. 
He owes what she owes, and she gets to enjoy what he gets to enjoy. That, that, that exchange happens. So when we come to faith in Christ, this is what he does for us. He says, I'm going to pay your debt, and you will get my riches. When Jesus went to the cross, this is what he was doing. He was saying, what is the debt that they owe? And I will pay it. The debt we owed was our very lives. We, we were supposed to serve God with our life. We were supposed to do, uh, take care of his world. But we said, no, I'm going to go my own way. And so we separated ourselves from God. We separated ourselves from the source of life. And so the consequence for us was death. We die physically. We die spiritually. And if nothing is done about it, we'll die eternally. And so Jesus says, that is the consequence. That is the price they need to pay. I will pay it. I will die in their place. But then what he says is this, if you put your trust in me, I will give you what is mine. I live the perfect life. I will die the death you deserve so that you can live the life I deserve. It's this exchange. You get my righteousness. He gets our guilt. Second solution to our shame is this. Resurrection. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection. This is the second cure to our regrets. It's actually the answer to our might-have-beens. Righteousness answers our should-have-dones. Resurrection answers our might-have-beens. Think about it this way. When Christ returns, those who have put their faith in him, we will be raised from the dead, and we will live forever with him. And what that does is it gives us a chance to live a life that's actually satisfying. The reason we have these might-have-beens is because we think, you know, I was given 80 years, and I think I squandered it. I think I made choices that I didn't get the most out of this. I missed out. But when we're raised, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a new body. So all those things that you said, you know what? When I, I wish when I was young and healthy and had energy, I had tried those things. You'll get a chance. You're going to have time. If you said, I wish I had created something. I wish I, I had written that song. I wish I had, had written that book. I had made that painting. I had done all this. You'll get a chance to do that. If you wanted to learn and discover and, and figure things out, get an education, you're going to have a chance. If you wanted to travel and explore and see the world that God made, you're going to get a chance. If you wanted to have relationships that went deep, you look back on friendships you had and you say, man, I missed out. I didn't keep up with that person. I didn't go as deep as I should. I didn't have the satisfying relationships I desired. Guess what's going to happen? Loved ones and new friends and relationships that you never even imagined would be possible are going to be provided for you in the resurrection, in the new world. And here's the other thing that's going to happen in the resurrection. You're going to look at aspects of your life that you say, this felt so important to me. I feel like I missed out on that, and it seemed like such a big deal at the time. But then in the light of Jesus, the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ that Paul talks about, you're going to look at those things and say, why did I worry so much about that? It's all going to become clear. All the might-have-beens will be washed away. The solution to your should-have-dones and your might-have-beens are righteousness and resurrection. But how do you get those things? Verse 9 says they only come through faith in Christ. They're on the basis of faith. When we talk about faith, that means more than just believing that Jesus did something, that he showed up, that he spoke, that he died. It means something deeper than that. It's going all in with Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about, saying, I want to know Christ, to be found in him. It means you've got to surrender your regret and say, I can't manage this life on my own, God. I can't do it for myself. I need something more. You need to save me. Without you, I am lost. The only way to overcome regret ultimately is by surrendering it to Jesus. Once you've done that, though, you can take the final step, and that's this, to grow 
from your regret, to grow from your regret. One of my favorite time travel movies is a movie you probably don't think is a time travel movie. It's Groundhog Day. Any Groundhog Day fans here? Okay. My sister and I, we have this ongoing debate about whether or not this is a good movie. I love this movie. And she's like, it is so obnoxious. Premise, if you don't know it, is uh, Bill Murray is uh, playing a character and he gets stuck reliving the same mediocre day again and again and again. It happens to be Groundhog's Day. Doesn't matter what he does, whether he falls asleep in a different place or he dies or whatever. Every single day he wakes up at 6 a.m. with Sonny and Cher blaring in his ear to relive February 2nd. And he does it thousands of times, thousands of times. And the humor of the movie is watching Bill Murray do outrageous things just to break the monotony of this dumb day. But the heart of the movie is seeing him actually become a different person. Seeing him actually at some point wake up and realize, you know what, I could have done it differently. And where I wasn't a jerk, where I wasn't arrogant, where I actually was open to other people and served other people and loved. See, this is the difference between that movie and many other time travel movies. Most other time travel movies, the point is to go back and fix the consequences of an event. But if you go back and you fix the consequences, you know what happens? You still have to live with the fact that in the beginning, you were the sort of person who caused that problem to begin with. That you are, you're still that sort of person, even if you could undo it. But what we really need is a transformation that actually makes us into a new person. That's what we really desire. This is what Paul talks about in verse 12 in this kind of final paragraph here. He says this, it's not that I've already obtained all this, or if I, I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me, to which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. How does Paul deal with his past? He forgets what's behind and strains towards what's ahead. Now, we know that Paul doesn't literally forget his past. In fact, we have proof, just a paragraph before, that he can list off the things that he did in his old life. He remembers them, and there are other places in the Bible where he reflects on those. So what does he mean that he forgets those things? What he means is he is no longer defined by them. He is no longer defined by his past. He is no longer anchored and chained to his regret, the things he's done in his past. His life is defined by his hope for his future, of who God has called him to be and who he is becoming. That is where he puts his identity and his hope. But the reason Paul can do this is only because he's been through the process of what we just talked about. You cannot, you cannot start to grow from your regret until you acknowledge it, until you're humble enough to admit that you need help, that you haven't done well in your life. You gotta be able to say what Paul says. I haven't already obtained this. I haven't arrived at my goal. I, I'm still messed up. I need help. And then by surrendering your regret and hearing that God calls you righteous, that he's giving you the hope of resurrection, you realize, you know what? Even though I, I don't know how to fix myself, I'm not a lost cause. I'm not doomed to stay where I am. God has claimed me as his own, and so I can proceed from here. And it's really, really important to get the order right here. It, it is not this. The Bible does not say, you know what? You better grow first, and then God will accept you. The Bible says this, God has accepted you, and now you can grow. He's not saying you better arrive, and then I'll declare you righteous. He says, I've declared you a righteous so that one day you will arrive. The order really, really matters, and it actually helps in a really practical way. If you are going to dig into your past, it is a hard thing. Any of you have tried to do this, you know it gets emotional, it gets difficult, and there's a temptation when you say, I'm going to open that up. Ugh, I do not like that. You just close it back down. So take, for example, if, if you've got regrets from your family, you say, I, I really need to go back and revisit those relationships. I've got to talk about those wounds. I've got I've to apologize for some things. 
you're not going to want to do it. It's going to be really hard. But if you know, already you've said, you know, I, I've already admitted to God, who matters the most, that I didn't do things right. I can admit to another person the same thing. And if you already know, God has accepted me, he's loved me, he's promised a hope and a future that cannot be taken away. I know if I open this up as hard as it gets, it will not destroy me. It will not destroy me. It will only make me better because God has taken a hold of me. I was talking last night after I gave this sermon to a guy in the Welcome Center. He came up to me and he, he was telling the story of his life in Christ. He'd been walking with Christ for a while. And he said, when I first surrendered to Christ, I had all of these regrets. And he listed off a bunch of things that, that, were, that were heavy things. He said, I had all these regrets and they kept plaguing me. And he got good advice from a friend and that friend said, why don't you pray and have the Holy Spirit kind of help you list off the things that just keep plaguing you and bugging you. And you list those out, actually write them out. And then you pray, God, give me an opportunity to grow from these things, to have some kind of closure, some sort of redemption in these areas. And he said, you'd be amazed that when you're open and honest like that, the things that God provides. And it turns out he had to go do some really, really hard things. He said, on this one, I actually had to go and admit to someone I'd done something really wrong, and I might have had some consequences when I did that. Or I had to go back to a relationship that was really awkward the way I ended it, and I had to do, do something about that. But he said it was amazing knowing that God had already taken care of him, that he was already secure in Christ, the way he could take those risks, and the ways that it grew him and changed him. This can be true of you. This can be true of you. And the hope is this. You do not actually have to change yourself. It does not have to be your power that fixes it. It's the fact that God has taken a hold of you that does the work. Now, all of this, all of this assumes one thing, that you actually have come into a relationship with Jesus. You, you can't actually deal with your regrets until that has happened. And I know that every single week here at Christ Community, there are people who come in and they say, I've never done that yet. I'm just exploring, I'm figuring it out. I'm not sure what I think about that. But I know there are some of you here, you're saying, I need to do that. I desperately need that in my life for the regrets that I have in my past. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a chance to actually take that step and surrender to Jesus. The way I'm going to do that is I'm actually going to pray a prayer. And the prayer is very simple. It's not a magical prayer. It's not like it was written in the Bible, like you must say these words to, you know, surrender to Christ. But we found that this is a pattern that if people pray these sorts of things, it actually helps them say what they need to say to God. And the pattern is this. It goes, sorry, thanks, please. Really simple. Even a kid can understand it. Sorry, thanks, please. You start by saying, God, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong. Here are my regrets. I admit they're wrong. Then you say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to die on the cross, for paying the price for my sin and for being raised from the dead so I could have life. Thank you. And then you say, please, God, forgive me. Please give me your righteousness. Please transform me. Please bring me into your family. Give me a hope and a future. And so this is what we're going to do. I'm just going to walk through that pattern with you. And if you're here and you've never done that, today is the day. Do it. Pray and begin that relationship with Jesus and start dealing with those regrets. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to surrender to you. We need your help. And so for each person here that needs to do that, this is what we want to pray. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things that I've done. I have regrets in my past. I was at fault and I was wrong. I'm sorry. You just take a moment here in silence and in your heart to express the things you're sorry to God about. Confess those to him.
the next thing we say is thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. You did for me what I couldn't do for myself. You paid the price for my sin. You died on the cross. And then you rose again. You conquered death so that I could have a new life. Jesus, thank you for what you did. Thank you for saving me. Go ahead and express that in your own words, in your heart to God. The next step to take is to say, please, please, God, save me. Please forgive my sins and give me your righteousness. Please begin to transform me and free me from the things that keep me enslaved. Please welcome me into your family. Make me your son, your daughter. Please, God, give me a hope and a future with you. Go ahead and express that desire for God to save you in your own words, in your heart. God, we're thankful for each person who prayed that prayer, who've taken that step to say, God, I need you. God, we're we're grateful that you always answer that prayer. You always answer that prayer and you rescue and save those who put their trust in you. So God, we're thankful for our brothers and sisters who have joined the family, who have been welcomed in, who have been forgiven because of what you've done. God, we're thankful that we can celebrate with them today the new life that you've given them. And God, we pray for this upcoming week for them, that you would go with them and begin to work on those things in their past that they've surrendered to you, that you would fill them with a sense of your presence and your love, that you would surround them with people who are gonna walk with them and you would help them begin a new relationship that will go on for the rest of their lives in eternity. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.